This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Moises Koper, Research Professor at the Institute of Development Policy at the University of Antwerp. We'll be talking about his book, Architectures of Hope, Infrastructural Citizenship and Class Mobility in Brazil's Public Housing, published in 2022 by the University of Michigan Press. Thank you very much, Moises, for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Aliza. It's a pleasure to be here. So to begin, let's learn about your background as an anthropologist. How did anthropology bring you to Porto Alegre and ultimately to this book? So I was actually born and raised not too far away from Porto Alegre. Just perhaps to situate our audience, Porto Alegre is the relatively wealthy capital city of the southernmost state of Rio Grande do Sul in southern Brazil. So it's also the head of the fifth largest metropolitan area in Brazil after Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, Belo Horizonte, and Brasilia. And perhaps Porto Alegre is best known internationally for having once been the world's leftist progressive hotspot. In the 1990s, it pioneered uh, participatory budgeting forms all over the peripheries of the city. And in, in the 2000s, it hosted several editions of the World Social Forum. So I moved to the city when I was 17 to attend college first in one of Brazil's excellent federal universities. After majoring in the social sciences, I, I did my graduate studies in anthropology. And maturing intellectually in such an effervescent environment, I was always fascinated by the legacy of Porto Alegre's participatory architecture. So I wanted to always know more about it and what this meant uh, for the citizens who were involved on the ground. So as you can imagine, that's when anthropology comes into the picture. So my first ethnographic forays were into the makings of community leaders in Porto Alegre. So what drew them to participate? 
uh, what did they do with all the practical knowledge that they received in those forums? How did they navigate politics uh, from there? So for years, I also worked very closely with a group of marginalized street vendors who were mobilizing first within the participatory forums uh, in Porto Alegre. And they were trying to escape at the time uh, a municipal project of urban gentrification that was trying to remove them from the streets and force them uh, to reinstall themselves in a shopping mall of sorts where they were supposed to become rent payers and micro entrepreneurs. Around that time, about uh, 12 years ago, Brazil was beginning to undo some of the huge economic uh, and social dis disparities that, that have always characterized uh, our society in Brazil. As a Brazilian myself, I grew up hearing expressions like, the pie must first grow before it can be distributed. It was how economists used to refer to and promote a model of economic growth that put the interest of the poor and working classes aside in the name of fiscal austerity and neoliberal readjusting. Not at all an unfamiliar receipt for a disaster. Social policies like conditional cash transfer programs and uh, public housing were fundamentally breaking with this model of exclusionary development. And that's when I had the idea to do the research that inspired this book. Something new and unexpected was going on on the ground, and I wanted to hear from those who had naturalized their structural invisibility in society, and, but were now availing themselves of new structures of governance to change their futures. And that's when I did all the research that went into this book, as, first as my PhD, uh, and then uh, a few years afterwards, converting that uh, into the book. Yeah, thanks so much for, you know, really orienting us to, you know, the broader context of the book, both the geographic context, but also the sociopolitical context. And with that, I want to jump right into one of the core concepts of the book, which is hope. So, you know, just like you beautifully oriented us to Porto Alegre, I was wondering if you could orient us to the Minha Casa Minha Vida program. And I'm also curious about what about this program lead you to um, not just hope, but to the subjunctivity of hope. Sure. So Minha Casa Minha Vida, My House, My Life in English, was basically Brazil's most ambitious ever attempt into public housing. The program was first designed and launched during the Lula da Silva years, the second term as president at the pinnacle of the international mortgage crisis back in 2008-2009. So it was built around the promise of strengthening the civil construction industry on the one hand, but also expanding domestic consumption and promoting home ownership for the poor by delivering millions of highly subsidized housing units all over the urban peripheries uh, of Brazil. Over time, as I met with bureaucrats and architects, as I visited um, housing beneficiaries in their old and new homes, as I also followed the meetings and activities of, key, of a key housing association in Porto Alegre, I came to think of Minha Casa Minha Vida as a sort of a key technology of, of poverty governance. If we look at any large-scale intervention program, Think of, let's say, a conditional cash transfer initiative or a public health program. We'll find first 
that they need a sort of decentralized implementation strategy to work. That's essentially how the state extends its reach and makes itself visible and available to citizens all over the most extreme faraway peripheries of the, of the big cities in, in countries like Brazil. Then these programs rely on the administration of what I call calculated scarcity, which is to say they work by engaging people's hopes for better futures on the one hand, and by selectively distributing access to these scarce benefits on the other. So what results is an uneven geography of visibilities and invisibilities, of inclusions and exclusions in these programs, um, of new opportunities, but also of new challenges within the urban fabric. In Porto Alegre, things weren't that much different. From the beginning of the political mobilization that they followed on the ground, people knew that there wouldn't be homes for all. But there was something that kept these people coming and going and engaged against all odds. So I began to see how hope itself was important, both uh, politically and effectively. It was used uh, to mobilize and organize and rank activists and their merits to earn a home. But it was also the stuff of which individual and familial desires and anxieties and future expectations was made of. So I, I never saw hope as something too abstract or philosophical, but more like a political and effective driving force that was engaged and honed and uh, transformed in the context of policy implementation. I always like to tell the story of uh, Dona Ilda, a woman who had lived for most of her life in informal rentals and squatted properties on the outskirts of Porto Alegre. And at the age of 95, she decided to, to register for a housing unit and then become the kind of poster person for the new kind of life that was made possible at this intersection of public policy and grassroots politics and personal effort. Despite all the difficulties in her life, Duna Hilda never stopped wandering and moving and crafting new beginnings until becoming the first person to receive the keys to her new apartment five years after. So here, just to come back to your question, the subjunctive mood becomes a window into the future. It indicates both the contingency, but also the possibility of a state of being that's not yet, it may not be, but yet it's fiercely desired by people on the ground. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up Dona Irda because her stories were the ones that really stuck with me after reading the book. And people like her, to me, really capture how people come to inhabit urban citizenship and its futures through materiality and infrastructure. So I'm curious about how your attention to materiality and housing infrastructures inform your approach to citizenship and what becomes of political membership through this lens, maybe continuing on the thread of hope as a political force? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Those are very important questions, Elizabeth. So in a project about uh, public housing, of course, materiality and uh, infrastructure, they're everywhere. They are in the walls. You can find them in corridors, the sewage systems, the intercom communications, the surveillance technologies. But they're also in places that are less visible where a social scientist would normally not think to look at or to search for material stuff. 
They are, for example, in the stacks of paper and technologies that are designed by local leaders to track participation of housing activists. Uh, we are talking about, for example, the things I saw in the field, uh, computerized signing logs and handwritten records of meetings, uh, the production of membership cards with personal information uh, and pictures and the uh, bookkeeping registers. All these elements that shaped kind of everyday terrains in which policy implementation took place on the ground. Uh, so it, it, it was very common also to see huge lines forming before the meetings of this housing association, just as activists waited and tried to make themselves visible bureaucratically and morally uh, before their leaders. So these technologies of participation, they're critical because they provide a collective framework for the reorganization of individual hopes into a sort of collective asset. And this is a key point that I document in the book, how individual hopes, they morph into something bigger than themselves, into something that becomes and is used at the collective level as an asset by this organization. For many people like Dona Hilde, then the question of how to become a housing beneficiary was first a question of how to be seen by these infrastructures of participation. So by complying with bureaucracy and producing public testimonies of, of her needs and worthiness, Dunayilda showed that she had learned to communicate those individual hopes into a language of collective action. For her, these technologies, they were more than simple tools that were used to accumulate and to monitor and gauge participation. They also became the intimate site for the exercise of citizenship. So in the book, I refer to the materiality of citizenship as a process of building infrastructural citizenship. So on the one hand, the very concept of infrastructural citizenship is about how activists go and create the conditions to access a home, which in Brazil is a fundamental constitutional right. But on the other, at a more mundane and ethnographic level, there is something unique also in that infrastructure itself becomes the grounds for citizenship. Infrastructural citizenship then is also about how people experience uh, the whole process of mobilizing for housing and how that itself creates new kinds of uh, sociability that are mediated by the very materials um, through which people socialize uh, as a political process. Because also, as we were just talking about, housing depends uh, on accessing housing depends also on accessing the world of protocols and paperwork on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And no, I want to maybe open up something you mentioned. So we've already mentioned that political membership is not even, and you mentioned um, that participation was often mediated through gauging who's worthy. So I'd love to hear more about the role of worthiness and morality in the afterlives of housing policy? You know, if we go back to the notion that housing benefits are unevenly distributed on the ground, it's not difficult to imagine how even a well-meaning comprehensive program to improve the livelihoods of the poor people ends up also creating and enforcing uh, inequalities within this very target population. And that's because not every person on the ground engages 
engages the same way with these technologies of participation. Even their capacity to hope and aspire against all odds is unevenly distributed and varies across lines of power and social hierarchy, class, race, or gender. So many housing members then, they saw paperwork as a technology that was meant to create new differences among the poor by ranking their merits and efforts to earn a house. These ranks were pretty much based on how much moral work one had accrued over time. So the housing members took them as a more or less objective measure of their worthiness to become homeowners. So that in practice, this process enabled uh, leaders to enforce a discourse of rights at the same time as they were also able to justify controversial decisions in technical terms. And that's why over time, infrastructural citizenship also creates new regimes of inclusion and exclusion of the urban poor from the urban fabric. It lends emerging differences a sort of moral framework to hold on. So let's think, for example, about what happens as people wait uh, many times for years until uh, these uh, scarce benefits find their way into the hands of those who really need it the most. There's a certain temporality at stake here that's, that ultimately legitimates and sustains these new social and moral differences. Scholars sometimes take the temporality of waiting to mean an empty time. Nothing could be farther from what happens on the ground if you really look at it. As activists embrace the tempo of waiting, they recast the apartment unit as the fair reward for years of moral, financial, and temporal investments. So the time of waiting is not an empty time, but actually a time in which people prepare, anticipate, participate, accumulate knowledge, engage with documents, and produce public testimonies about their needs and will to thrive. In short, it's a time to accumulate and display worthiness. And as uh, Dona Ilda is seen by bureaucracies and politicians alike, she at the same time refashions the very terms of recognition that make her into a deserving and upwardly mobile citizen. Yeah, I really appreciate how you draw our attention to different kinds of waiting, right? Um, and in the book, you also um, draw our attention to different kinds of hope. And one of those that I want to talk about is hopes around class mobility. So, you know, in the book, you show us that hopes around class mobility are not straightforward, but instead you conceptualize these hopes as a topography entangled with consumption. So can you speak more to your topographic approach to hope and upward mobility? Of course, yeah. First, it's important, I think, to note that the market inclusion and consumption were thoroughly embedded in the design of Mia Casa Mia Vida projects. So, for example, each beneficiary received a credit card sponsored by Brazil's largest public bank with a pre-approved credit limit of some some $2,000 to purchase furniture and appliances for their new homes. This initiative was supposed to minimize the social and financial impacts of moving, but as soon became clear, the credit program was also meant to develop sort of like responsible and informed consumers. Through kind of interactions with consumer objects, these beneficiaries, they were supposed to learn 
how to make their desires of improvement fit within their budgets and within the physical limits of the apartments that they were receiving. And critical to this endeavor was the way in which the, the, the Mia Casa Melior, this credit program, was designed. So Mia Casa Melior had 14 different categories of goods, each of them specifying a price cap that limited how much beneficiaries could actually spend per item. So to take, for example, um, uh, use of all credit, beneficiaries had to diversify their purchases and think of the, ho of the house as a holistic space where ideas of comfort, of well-being and privacy all came together. So in practice, I noticed that this governmental credit was combined and recombined with other payment methods like in-store credit lines or borrowed credit cards and even like personal savings that people had. As I was observing interactions between salespeople and beneficiaries, I also noticed that the price caps that the program stipulated for each category of goods were constantly renegotiated in practice to make space, to make room for dreams of consumption. So, and I also, it's, it's very interesting because I also documented several complaints from disgruntled consumers, right? About the quality and the variety of goods, but also about how they were treated, uh, sometimes mm -hmm. condescendingly in retail stores as, you know, first time consumers. Now, thinking of all this material, it's, I always think about the question of what did it actually mean in practice, you know, for these first time homeowners to be included in consumer markets. We have so much literature about that and the new liberalization of consumers and, and the poor. And I'll say that in a society that's still hunted by socioeconomic inequalities like Brazil, emergent low income consumption was both a marker for a new class positionality, but also an act of political imagination. You know, homeowners had to develop new skills to navigate the limitations of low income markets and make every day, make practical decisions about uh, consumerism and money allocation. So in other words, their dreams of upward social mobility required them to reconvert hope again. So once people moved to the projects and uh, they started to see themselves as first time homeowners, they had to think again of hope um, as something that they needed to mobilize critically to renegotiate the terms and boundaries of their own infrastructural citizenship. And the materiality of money and credit here is key because it allowed beneficiaries to transform their ideals of the good life into something concrete, into something mm -hmm. that they were able to adequate to the space and the budget they had. So these instruments, they, they equipped beneficiaries with an economic but also a moral language through which they found themselves prioritizing and calculating, recalculating, recalibrating expectations. Uh, and they made it possible, in, in other words, for residents to fulfill their ideals of privacy, of comfort, of fairness and dignity through the very design and implementation of these consumer markets. Mm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned that these hopes of upward mobility require certain skills. And you also show us in the book that they require certain kinds of sensorium or the development of them. And my next question is sort of on the methodological side of that. So I'm very curious about the you know, methodological demands of attending to these kinds of sensorium or middle-class sensorium, as you call them. So how did you orient yourself to sensate worlds throughout your fieldwork? Yeah, so um, I'm in the book I call, uh, I'm basically speaking about how through these consumer markets and the political uh, legacies of their mobilization, this, this housing beneficiaries were able to build a sort of like middle-class sensorium over time. So I'm basically thinking of a middle-class sensorium as, a, as an ethnographic attempt to rebuild the concept, the complex, sorry, and moving constellations of images, of affects and infrastructures that people use to define what it means for them to become middle-class citizens. So anthropologists, they don't typically pay attention to class formations. And that's partly due to the fact that historically the concept has been taken up by neighboring disciplines like sociology, where it was linked to processes of production and income and social distinction. But it's also, I suspect, because it's difficult for anthropologists to work with such a broad methodological lens in a field that um, uh, is trying to always find ways of theorizing um, through empirical materials, right? And to... uh, never lose sight of the complexities and the experiences and historical realities that shape people's lives. So when I was conducting fieldwork with housing activists and later on uh, in the project uh, between 2012 and 2015, Brazil, like many other developing countries at the time, was being reconceptualized perhaps through the work of economists and and, and other public experts as a sort of a middle-class country. So as I show in a, in a different part of my research, this was the result of a new metrics on poverty and inequality that were spearheaded internationally by organizations like the World Bank, but also domestically in Brazil, across circuits of science and policymaking and markets. So during the presidency of Dilma Rousseff, for example, efforts were made to bring together experts and practitioners to rediscuss Brazil's official stratification system, essentially depouring the Brazilian society. So dozens of millions of people were said to have moved out of poverty all of a sudden into this newly defined uh, Brazilian middle class. And that included, of course, people in the, in the public housing uh, sector, right? People who, who were living on two or three minimum wages of monthly domestic income which back at that time in 2012 was roughly $500 per family per month. 
So in Architectures of Hope, I'm interested in what happens after people move to the projects in search of a better life. How do they convert the hopes that drove them to the projects into aspirations for material upworkability? Right? And how are they defining themselves, if not as new middle-class citizens on the ground? Right? I wanted to not only probe the reach of this wide-ranging discursive incitements, but also understand how people themselves define the experience of inhabiting the middle, right? This like elusive social and political and experiential space that policymakers and development practitioners hail as the way out of poverty. So let me let me very briefly perhaps tell you the story of Seu Juliano. He was uh, 65 when he became famous at the, at the field site for moving uh, to the construction um, place in 2013 and then residing inside of a construction container for months before the apartment complex was ready for habitation. Living amid the debris, he put together a makeshift office and he attended to the housing association members as they called or visited for receiving updates on the construction, right? And then two years later in January, 2015, I came back to visit Sao this time in his new apartment. He had just moved in a few months earlier. And if you thought about the crumbling living conditions in the, in, in the container, you wouldn't recognize the elegant and well-dressed man that was standing in front of me, right? Like a comfortable environment packed with technological objects emerged in lieu of sand and debris. So, so Giuliano even brought along the stray dog that kept him company at the construction site. The difference being the animal was now groomed and leashed and labeled a pet by him. <laughs> so... And, and, from, and from the comfort of his new couch, of his new apartment, so Juliano had lots, of, lots to say about the infrastructural citizenship of poor Brazilians. And, and I want to just quote his words, which I think are very poignant words for us to understand and go back to the question of class again and, and, and how we study this in anthropology. He said, where I lived before, there was no class. People were expandable. Now they are proud users of cards and buy in stores. Even their skin looks better. They're smiling more often. All of this affects your mind. You start to develop a class. Mm. There's so much that could be said here about this point in words, right? But I want to simply highlight that in Seu Juliano's and many others' narratives, we are not talking about abstract positions of class in a hierarchical stratification system. But instead, this narrative... These narratives, they function more like moving positionalities within an affective and material and urban geography of forces. They reveal topographies, like we were talking about earlier, of a before and also an after, right? So the imaginaries associated with these places and the concrete experiences and histories of class that they evoke, they can be understood, and this is how I call it here, a middle-class sensorium. So a middle-class sensorium is about the ways that people find to defy this rigidity and the verticality of a certification system. It's about making sense of the effects that are generated as people work toward achieving a middle-class status. But it's also about 
recognizing the very fragility of this project of upward mobility, which involves actually a variety of vectors, not just up and down, but uh, past and present, left and right, the social ladder. So it's very much about what economists and sociologists would miss entirely if they looked at the story of Sao Julian. Right. And, you know, even in your response, I was thinking about how the word after is perhaps very important in the book or in my reading, um, not to impose a linear, you know, temporality um, on the lives of people we're discussing. But, you know, what made me think about this also is how you describe Architectures of Hope as a book that traces the afterlives of policy. So I'm curious about... Um, your methodological approach to an ethnography of policy and of its afterlives specifically? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So, uh, you know, from the beginning, I wanted uh, Architectures of Hope to take a sort of long-term perspective on policy implementation. To me, uh, the workings of time are pivotal. And this is not only because as an anthropologist, I want to get a thicker, perhaps more realistic sense of what's uh, at stake and what's going on on the ground, the impacts and the empirical ambiguities perhaps that are ingrained in contemporary social policy. I also want to think ethnographically, again, like we were just talking about class also, I want to think ethnographically um, about questions like policy implementation, you know, and how we can really go about that empirically. So just to give an example again, during fieldwork, I heard from different activists all the time that we are the ones making public policy a reality. They used to say that a lot, and I was always puzzled by what exactly they meant You know, when they, when they told me that in the most different of, of scenarios and contexts. Because people used to be very you know, outspoken about uh, the value of their grassroots work and how that was critical for them to achieve, um, you know, recognition as citizens, but also to give the program, the housing program, a public face, right? So as an ethnographer, I want to take the pledge seriously. And I began asking, you know, how were their efforts actually shaping policy outcomes? And how were their efforts figuring in public accounts of the housing program in Porto Alegre? So documenting these changes and impacts they require us to be there, right, uh, in the field for extended period of times to interact with people, to, you know, sometimes you live with somebody for some time, um, to really stay close to the field and to really experience the, the, the everyday lives that people, you know, uh, go, the things that people go through uh, when they make public policies a reality. And, and that's because from, a, from an anthropological perspective, you can think about the, uh, public policies the same way you think about technologies or other dispositives, right? Um, policies are vivid, they're dynamic, they, they change over time, they're co-produced by all the actors involved. Of course, they carry their own rationalities and the rationalities of the designers that made them, but at the same time, they are taken up in so many different ways and in messy and unpredictable ways. And then they acquire a life of their own. So in the book, I reflect on all of that, and I call this method of, of tracing the long-term effects of public policies in practice, policy afterlives. 
And this is an approach that essentially takes us away from mainstream or linear models and understandings of policy towards considering the ways in which actors and institutions and concepts and technologies all interact to shape local microcosm of, microcosms of intervention. It also pushes us to think about the sorts of social fields that emerge as these programs are rolled out on the ground and uh, how powerful actors take up the results of, the, of these interventions to give new meanings to their programs, right? To increase, you know, in, in to increase ultimately the capacity of, of, of policies to travel well from context to context. So understanding the everyday terrains of policy implementation requires us to follow the various threads and scales of these development projects. From in, in my case, from the association members and leaders and their political and social endeavors to the beneficiaries in their old and new homes, to the architects and the housing experts, the politicians and the market representatives, always looking at how they interact and how they reshape fundamental questions around governance and belonging. Yeah, thank you very much for you know, outlining this so eloquently. I can imagine it will be very beneficial for our listeners who are working on their own projects. Um, you know, something else that struck me was sort of how infrastructures keep bleeding into your fieldwork, either, you know, making it possible or at times tampering it. And maybe that's fitting, um, you know, since you've written a book about infrastructural citizenship. But I'm curious about how infrastructures figured into your methodological orientation, especially the infrastructures around security. Yeah, so... You know, earlier when we talked about the ubiquity of infrastructure and the role of infrastructure in shaping political spaces of participation and intervention programs on the ground, here we also go back to infrastructure then uh, when we think about the what happens after people move to the housing projects, right? It's a critical technology also in the ways that beneficiaries they attempt to secure their mm-hmm. newfound achievements as homeowners after they move to the projects. So it, it's important to stress here, perhaps, that Minha Casa Minha Vida apartments, they have to follow a standardized architectural plot that includes two bedrooms, a bathroom, a lounge area, and a shared kitchen and living space. And it's they are usually organized, the projects themselves are organized into several towers that are placed side by side and surrounded by common areas with game courts, party saloons and other kinds of facilities like plazas and benches with the idea in mind that this is going to foster conviviality, you know, in the project. And security infrastructures, they are part and parcel of how these residents then, you know, were socialized into this sort of new kind of life that projects are supposed to promote. But at the same time, they're also a critical site Uh, for the housing uh, beneficiaries to negotiate new meanings around well-being and around class. So again, to give a very brief example, uh, just two years after they moved, so around 2016, 2017, residents began organizing already to devise a plan to install 
this uh, more and more surveillance and uh, technology infrastructures like intercom systems in the complex. And in my research then, in one of my last chapters, I follow this story of how a group of residents, a few years just after they moved, how they, uh, how they put in practice a plan that would transform and modernize the infrastructure of the public housing project. I interrogate their efforts as a process of bottom-up condominization. Uh, and with this idea, I, I want to refer to the social and the material processes that come together in the imagination and the construction of this collective space and the collective areas, the common areas in the projects, right? So think about the monthly fees that are collected by residents and their associations to form, you know, new collective organizations and to use and manage those infrastructures. Um, all this kind of like relates back to the questions of class again, right? So by envisaging bottom-up condominization processes, uh, these new homeowners, they also redefine the very norms of conviviality that, that uh, both uh, resemble but also differ from the conventional middle-class gated communities that you find in Brazil and other parts of Latin America that Teresa Caldera so uh, aptly described in the 2000s, right? Uh, they, they define, um, they're, they're defined uh, by, by a discourse of fear uh, and, and, and quest for security. But at the same time, if you look at the, the fences and the walls and the controlled entrances, they're always porous. There's always some kind of exchange uh, not, not just of bodies, but also of, of knowledges and of information that's going on there. So in a recent publication that goes beyond the book, uh, my colleague uh, Matthew Richmond and I, we defined uh, this practice of building walls uh, in Brazilian peripheries as a social material assembly of physical and symbolic uh, barriers in urban space. And the idea here is to highlight that through these uh, calculated obstacles, people seek to reconstruct uh, a certain sense of well-being within social and institutional environments that are increasingly experienced as precarious and uh, insecure, right? Um, so going back to, to the projects in Porto Alegre and the way they sought to, uh, to install surveillance or intercom infrastructures, this, this, on the one hand, of course, followed the deterioration of public safety in the state, but at the same time, as I was saying, it's never just reduced to the discourse of fear. There's something else that goes on uh, in how people also imagine these spaces, right? And how this condominization from below actualizes ideas of privacy and conviviality um, by introducing this sort of authentic authenticating procedures in the everyday lives of, of, of residents. And as they seek to maintain and improve life uh, in, inside this, this, this private property that's now theirs, right? Yeah, that is so interesting and an angle I haven't thought about before. Um, yeah, and I appreciate how throughout this conversation we've been going back to... Um, you know, other points of conversation previously, I think it's really a sign of, you know, a book with a very strong argument and common thread that we keep going back to. So I enjoyed that a lot. Um, and having said that, uh, we're reaching the end of our conversation. And on a note of hope, I'm curious how you hope the book circulates or is received by readers. And what is next for you in terms of your writing and research? 
Yeah, so I, I sincerely hope that Architectures of Hope um, reopens important conversations, you know, that we as anthropologists have sort of delegated to almost too readily to other disciplines. And I think I, I touched on some of them here in this conversation, right? So I'm talking about the idea of social class, for example, right? But also how we come to think about public policies or even the future, right? As an object that for the longest time was completely almost ignored by anthropologists, right? So there is, there's so much um, in this concepts that we can flesh out from an ethnographic perspective, right? And show how even, you know, policies and ideas on class are situated and engaged, uh, you know, uh, realities uh, and how we can reveal things that have usually been uh, left aside by this by these perspectives. So um, I hope that the book rekindles uh, some of these conversations and brings a, a wave of, of, of new studies to document uh, these important issues from the perspective of the actors, right, directly involved in it. That said, I also think that Architectures of Hope has much to say to policymakers and practitioners that are interested in building perhaps new and alternative sensibilities to the problems of, of how we engage today in public policies. If you think about uh, the world uh, that we're living in right now, right, uh, dealing with the wreckage of environmental destruction and this growing socioeconomic inequalities everywhere that continue to loom large despite the good intentions of economists and, and other mainstream experts, perhaps it's time to listen to what beneficiaries of these programs have been trying to tell us all along and take their experience seriously in building more tailored solutions that can sustainably improve their capacity to change uh, their own terms of recognition and act on their future, right? Which is ultimately the goal of every development project. So, yeah, that, that, that's what I hope for the book. And uh, just a few words, perhaps also what I'm doing now. So I just joined the IOB, which is the Institute of Development Policy here in Antwerp, Belgium, at the University of Antwerp. And I also just started a new project that will look into uh, the intersections between data practices and citizenship practices in five different countries. So beginning with Brazil, but extending the research comparatively into Germany, Portugal, Tanzania, and Kenya. So, yeah, and the critical idea here for this project, the kind of the sort of the point of departure here is that is the idea that you know, numbers and indicators, I think we spoke a little bit about this when about the housing project, how these numbers and other forms of quantified information, they fundamentally, they redraw the link between data and citizenship, right? So data practices and infrastructures, as, as we know, they have come to play a central role in, in shaping governance. You think about the design of public policies, like housing here, or you think about what happened during the COVID period, right? The epidemiological data that was used to monitor and spread, uh, to monitor, sorry, to monitor the spread of diseases. Uh, um, and you think about poverty alleviation indicators as well. So that's one thing, but we don't really know much about those people who have been producing data on an everyday basis in the marginalized communities of the global south right? 
which mm. is an area that has barely seen any research yet, right? We know that people in Rio de Janeiro, in the favelas, for example, they have been producing their own numbers to counter, you know, the absence of official statistics in some areas, for example, or to contest even the public numbers that governments produce about them, right? And we want to learn more about how this happens, right? How is the everyday uh, being shaped by these practices, right, of making and circulating their own numbers? That if you look at the recent scholarship about this, there's not much again, and people tend to focus uh, on this oppositional view between official statistics and the activist use of statistics as a form of, denunci- of denunciation. But I think we need to look closer at how these different scales of data production by citizens, by marginalized citizens, citizens are actually, you know, um, interacting with official statistics and using and availing themselves in a reciprocal process, right? Um, and how in this process you have new forms of identity and subjectivity uh, emerging on the ground, right? So we will, we will just establish still our data lab, but we will simultaneously uh, try to study top-down and the bottom-up data initiatives that involve the space of agency of citizens and experts. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, we want to think about both at the political level, but also think about the poetics of, of this data that's being produced, right? And in, this, in the same process, also reposition ethnography as a sort of foundation for uh, multidisciplinary theory of informational citizenship, right? So the project is very much still in its uh, early steps, but we have received an important grant from the European Research uh, Foundation. And we will bring together a, a broad ranging team of experts from anthropologists to sociologists and historians to generate uh, multimodal and applied outputs and integrate uh, academic knowledge with uh, practitioner knowledge and also citizens in these different parts of the world. Wow, that sounds so fascinating. And I personally will be looking out uh, for your arc from infrastructural to informational citizenship. Um, But for now, thank you very much, Moises, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And I I hope to be back one day to report on the current research uh, in the future. (laughs) We'll be happy to have you back. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of architectures of hope, infrastructural citizenship and class mobility in Brazil's public housing, published by the University of Michigan Press, is brought to you by the Anthropology Channel of the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.